And so like, I know that a lot of thrillers have either dual or multi point of views, um, but I really wanted to keep this inside of Dahlia because um, she was the only one who didn't have like a big secret that um, was related to all this. And so it, it kind of didn't make sense to go into the other people's heads. Um, and I wanted the reader to be feeling like those suspicions towards the family members in the same way that she kind of starts to Hello, Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners. This is Andrew Rimby. And of course, I'm joined with my book club co-host, Mary DePippi. Hi, Mary. Hello. So our March book club choice is Megan Collins' The Family Plot, which is very full of a lot of suspense and psychological shock horror, I would say in a way. So we are joined with the author herself. Hi, Megan. Hi, thank you so much for having me and for choosing my book to talk about. I'm thrilled to hang out with you guys. Yes. So right away with the family plot, Mary and I are so desperate to know where did you gain all of this serial, oh my, serial killer, there you go, (laughs) uh, serial killer inspiration from and all of the true crime elements in your novel. Yeah, well, I... I'm definitely someone who's interested in that stuff already. I listen to the podcasts, I watch the documentaries. Um, although what's weird is that since writing that book, I've kind of lessened my um, consumption of true crime because I think I kind of realized some things in the process. <laughs> but um, but yeah, so I I definitely had that all swirling around me, and um, the the idea for the book itself just came from. I was trying to title something else I was working on and I just couldn't figure out a title. And I told my husband, I want something that speaks to the family aspect of the book. And so he just threw out the first phrase he thought of with family in it, which was the family plot. And I was like, that doesn't work for this at all, but that is a great title. (laughs) And so then my mind just started spinning and I couldn't get it out of my head. And then I came up with this, this premise of, okay, this family, um, this kind of eccentric family, they gather to bury their patriarch. And then when they dig up his grave in the family plot, they find the remains of their brother who they didn't know was dead. They thought he was missing and it turns out he's been murdered. And I really loved that premise because I was like, that's weird, that's creepy. And then I thought, okay, well, what kind of family would it be most interesting to see in this terrible, bizarre situation? And so that's when the true crime element kind of got married with it that I was thinking, well, it would be so interesting if it was this family that had been obsessed with true crime and listened to all the podcasts, watched all the documentaries. And it goes a lot further than that in the book too with their um, obsession, um, but then has becomes the center of a true crime story themselves and has it literally in their backyard. Um, and so, so I was like, great, I can pull together all the knowledge that I've sort of passively accumulated and um, have some fun with that, which seems weird because it's so dark and awful and it's about serial killers and stuff, but um, it it was a fun thing to kind of pull that in. But I definitely so went down a lot of rabbit holes of just looking like, you know, I knew about certain serial killers or certain murders but when I was when I would think like okay I need one that maybe took place around this time and had something involved like this so I would look that up and then just see a lot of dark stuff and it's one of those like if the government is watching my search history they're gonna show up at my door and come arrest me (laughs) I totally understand that (laughs) absolutely um one of the characters you actually I've read in your acknowledgments that the inspiration behind Tate and her diorama 
Dogmas was Francis Glessner Lee and the Nutshell Studies. Um, I actually just interviewed the author of 18 Tiny Deaths, Bruce Goldfarb. I don't know if you've read that. Um, No, but by the title, I need to. (laughs) Excellent book. Um, It's more about her and her life and how she basically came to be. Um, But I was just curious, how did you learn about her and where, I mean, I know that's the inspiration for Tate's dioramas, but what made you decide like, oh yeah, that's what she's doing. Um, I, well, I first learned about her in um, this book by Rachel Monroe. Um, I think that's her name. I hope I didn't just get that wrong. It's in the acknowledgements, Um, Savage Appetites, which is, it's, it's a nonfiction book about like four different women who have been like connected to um, crime stories or things like that. And when I found out about this, I will personally, I love miniatures and anybody who follows me on Instagram knows that I do like mini Mondays and where I post a new miniature thing every Monday. So when I found out that there was this woman who had created miniatures of murder scenes, therefore combined two of my interests, I was, <laughs> I was a huge fan. And so I, I immediately looked them up and I, and it was so cool because not only were they um, these really intricate, small scale crime scenes, but um, I thought it was so cool that she had used those as a way to train detectives on how to identify where the clues are and who might have done things in a murder scene. So um, when when I was right when I was putting together ideas for this book, it kind of became like I always say that I went feral when I wrote this book. And I don't mean that I like went so crazy because it's really hard to write a book, which it is. But um, I mean that I just like, like took off all limits for myself and just was like everything that fascinates me and that I love, I'm gonna put in this book. So there's the true crime there. It takes place on a secluded island, which I think I'm very interested in. Um, there are serial killers. There's a big creepy house. Love big creepy houses. And then there are these miniatures with the crime scene dioramas that Tate does um, based on her own fascination with the murders that took place on the island where they lived um, their whole life. And uh, so it was just, it was, it was fun for me to bring that miniature aspect into it, but also like make it really creepy. <laughs> it was recently talking to um, my friend, Andrea Bartz, the author, um, we were never here. And she said that my like brand is taking wholesome things, making them dark. And I was like, you're right. That is, I'm going to use that from now on. <laughs> yeah. And That's um, so awesome. like, I know before the family plot, you wrote a novel. It's called Behind the Red Door. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. That was my second one. Okay. I always... When I hear that title, I always think of Elizabeth Arden's Red Door Spa. And I'm like, no, I don't think that's the, <laughs> I mean, that'd be a really um, pot twist, except yeah. I know there is a novel. I think Caitlin Starling, when we interviewed her, mentioned this novel called Base Notes about some maniacal perfumist Ooh. who like grinds mm-hmm. maybe bodies, but. You're going to have to read that. Yeah, yeah. So I, when you spoke about the secluded island first, um, I live now on Long Island. So I like, I always think of, oh, Shelter Island or like, right. And I think you grew up, I want to say Connecticut. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So like, there's a lot of that uh, setting, like that Mm -hmm. isolated um, historic mansions. And it's so beautiful. I think the way that the house, well, entraps the family, mm-hmm. uh, right? So they, yeah. there's a lot of Gothic nature in your novel. Were you really inspired by Gothic literature? It's funny because I started getting those comparisons once I was getting early readers on the book. And it, for some reason, had never occurred to me that there were a lot of Gothic elements in this book. But then as soon as someone said that, I was like, Oh yeah, obviously. Um, (laughs) So I think I was probably unconsciously inspired or again, it's just all the things that like are fascinating to me happen to be these kind of gothic elements. Um, So that was kind of just a a thing that accidentally made its way into the book. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think it really, your book has so many different intersections of genre. And I love that. Like, because, right, it could be a thriller. It can be um, a murder mystery. It's mm -hmm. a gothic novel. And yeah, the way that you um, blur the boundaries, Megan, it was amazing. Like, and I <laughs> listened to the audiobook, so I want to shout out the actress. Is it Emily Tremaine? Yeah. Okay. Incredibly well mm -hmm. done. I have to say, I think it's like up there as my favorite audiobook experience. Oh, wow. Yeah, she was she I was I got some choices of who I wanted my first, second, third pick, and she was definitely my first pick. I was like, Yep, yeah, please. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I was thrilled when she did it. Yeah. And the question that I always ask is. Have you listened to the entire audiobook? I haven't listened to the whole thing because it's it's more like I only have so many listening or reading hours in the day. Am I going to spend the time reading my own book when I've read it a million times? <laughs> um, but I have like sort of gone to key um, scenes and, and things that I was really curious about how she interpreted it and how she performed it. And that was really exciting. Yeah. And um it definitely, I know Mary, like reading it, mm -hmm. had the same experience where we were held in suspense, like from both versions of digesting the family plot. And there's so many moments where I would message Mary and say, oh my God, <laughs> like this family is unraveling. What like, is going on with Dahlia's um, struggles that she's faced with? So, I mean, I think we have to start with Dahlia, the- yeah first person point of view, mm -hmm. you know, narrator, protagonist, all things. Um, Named for the Black Dahlia. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so we're starting with the Black Dahlia. Were you always really invested in that, you know, murder mystery, true crime experience? Yeah, I mean, that story has always particularly haunted me, especially since it's so gruesome. And um, I've seen like the pictures that I probably shouldn't have seen, but I always look anyway. And then I'm like, why did I do that? Um, <laughs> but so that has really stuck with me. And the fact that like, there are theories and there are some pretty compelling theories, but like, it's never been like factually officially solved. Um, that's really interesting to me. And I actually had this really dark, it's always dark, but all the, this really dark idea for a story where this character who would be named Dahlia Black so the reverse of Black Dahlia mm -hmm. had the same thing happen to her as a Black Dahlia and then it was like but that's all I had that, that was just it and I was like I don't know where to go with that she's dead what do you do um <laughs> so when I was then coming up with the characters for this book um that idea of naming a character Dahlia after the Black Dahlia um was kind of swimming in my head and so I I then that was where I got the idea okay all of these kids in this really weird family are going to be named after um famous murder victims mm -hmm. and i wanted to open with that because the first paragraph is about that because i felt like that was a really clear introduction and this is not your regular family family at all <laughs> yeah, yeah. and i don't want to put you on the spot but can you for everyone listening can you say each character and who yeah. the famous murder victim is yeah, so Dahlia, we have Black Dahlia, um, her twin brother, Andy, who is the one who they find um, in, in the father's grave is after Andrew Borden. So the very, very famous Lizzie Borden case. Yeah. And in my book, uh, it's they also found out that Andy was killed by an ax, which so was Andrew Borden. So right away, that's like, what? Um, then the oldest brother Charlie is named after the Lindbergh baby um and then the um the second oldest child Tate named after Sharon Tate so the very famous Manson murders um so yeah I had a fun so weird again to say fun because it's so dark <laughs> but I had fun like picking out what would be those names what would be those stories and I wanted to use ones that even if you're not that familiar, even if you're not like a true crime um, aficionado or whatever, they're still in like the public conscious and you've probably heard of the Black Dahlia or the Lindbergh baby or um, Sharon Tate and all that. So that's why I went with those. 
Yeah, no, I really like that you chose Tate and not Sharon mm-hmm. for for Tate, which I think was awesome. Part of that was I just like the idea of Tate as a name, but um, my agent's name is Sharon, and so it felt oh. weird to create a <laughs> main character who who would go through some really rough things um, that that had a name with someone I work with so closely. <laughs> yeah, and I'm trying to remember what is. The matriarch's name, the mother. Lorraine. 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 She's not named after um, a famous murder victim because she did the naming of the kids, but yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, we can definitely dig into it. Their last name is Lighthouse. Mm-hmm. And you talk a lot about, you know, your inspiration now for the Black, about the Black Dahlia. Um, well, our serial killer is Black, the Blackburn killer. So Black mm-hmm. does get in somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> and burn, right? Like burn is definitely not evoking happy butterflies. Right. <laughs> um, and like, did Blackburn, did that just come to you? Like combining yeah. together? Yeah, it just, it. a lot of times when I name things in a book, unless it's a minor character, and then at that point, I'll just like scroll through Twitter until I find a name that sounds not like a first and last, but like a first or a last. Um, when it's a major character, character or like a major place I usually it just like has to kind of arrive into my head and then it'll just feel right and so like I've had character names that I don't even particularly like but they just they're there and they're like nope this is my name you have to deal with it so Blackburn was definitely like that and as soon as I thought of it I was like oh yeah like that definitely evokes some like darkness of course um and then and it was similar with um lighthouse that name just came to me and it actually wasn't until i got a message from a reader who said that his name was last name was lighthouse and so he wondered why i had chosen that that i had to like really think about it and it it first of all like it's very new englandy like mm-hmm. a lighthouse and all that as an image but um i also liked the contrast of they they do not live in a light house at all their house is very dark and um so i liked playing with that a little bit yeah it works really well that Mm -hmm. symbolism yeah that contrasting the binary of Mm -hmm. light darkness Mm -hmm. and but it's so blurry and ambiguous yeah which i think we need to (laughs) like i can tell mary is ready to Oh, no, I was going to ask, which was there a specific murder that inspired the Blackburn serial killer? Just because he has so many signatures. And for Mm -hmm. anyone who isn't a fan of true crime, a signature is something that a killer usually or criminal. It's a specific pattern of theirs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I I definitely wanted it to not be like based off of any one in particular because um, I didn't want to have to have that, that association in it and, and also have to be true to that association. Mm-hmm. So again, I just kind of thought like, what are some creepy things? And so when part, one of his signatures is um, that he brands the ankle of each woman mm-hmm. with this B, B and that kind of came to me from Blackburn is the name of the island. Mm-hmm. He's Blackburn killer. So that came into it um and he kind of tosses it he strangles the victims but then he um he dresses them in these identical ice blue gowns and then he kind of puts them sort of shallowly out to sea so that they'll wash back up on the beach and be found um so it was just like i was just thinking what are the kind of creepiest things i can think of for this guy <laughs> mm-hmm. which was part of the fun of writing again again mm-hmm. I know I sound insane, but not um, to me. <laughs> yeah, Mary has a, was... Mary hosts true crime in academia. She always says that too. Oh. Like I have so much fun, but wait, I don't mean fun about the actual yeah. murder. Yeah. Yeah. But I just love like diving into the creepy things. So it was so fun to just be like, I am off leash. Basically I can be as creepy mm-hmm. as I want to with this concept because it's already so dark. Yeah. And I'm still, I'm trying to have a refresher right now. Cause I know I have the Black Dahlia book mm-hmm. and it's like the movie tie-in. So it has mm-hmm. right. Her white, I think it's a white dress or some. Yeah. 
imagery yeah like that but was it in los angeles or where was it's where definitely were the murders california yeah it was in california i don't know i think it was la but i guess i don't know for sure yeah because wasn't it tied to the hollywood or i'm I don't, now but i have she, to watch like she relearn. had worked as an actress um yeah and if anybody doesn't know that story like she was it kind of references it in the first sentence of my book but she was like cut in half all her blood was drained from her body she had this smile cut into her face oh um and like <laughs> i don't recommend looking up the crime scene photos but if you're someone who's fascinated by that i kind of recommend it because <laughs> it's like one of the most fascinating ones i've ever seen but it also um you can't unsee it <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah yeah wait did you do you recommend the film version it's been so long since I saw that, that I don't even, I guess it didn't really register with me. So yeah, I was gonna maybe say, not. That's like, a, that's like a lukewarm, okay. Yeah. It, it, like it, it didn't land on either side. So, but well, did you see uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Yeah. Yeah. The reimagining of that Sharon mm-hmm. Tate scene yeah. was very interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm very obsessed with that movie. I also just love anything set in LA. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, so maybe now you gave me homework, Megan. I need to <laughs> look into the Black Dahlia. Well, I uh, used to be a teacher, so giving homework. There you go. Oh, what did you teach? <laughs> um, creative writing. Oh, oh awesome. Okay. Yeah. At college or? I did. Um, I was teaching literature and creative writing. At, um, I was adjuncting at a college, but my like full-time teaching job was Um, at an arts high school in Hartford, Connecticut. So the students would like major in a particular Mm. art form, even though they're high school students and not college students. And um, yeah, it was a great school, great program, great job. Um, But it kind of became, plus the pandemic, I was like, ooh, I don't want to be in the school building and I need more time to write, so. (laughs) Time, yeah, time's important. (laughs) And I've been so excited to see all of your Instagramming like you're waking up in the middle of the night right now this week apparently because there's something you're I'm assuming you're working on another novel yeah I'm I'm in that process of um like putting together the ideas getting the plot together um getting the materials together that we'll eventually submit to my publisher to try to hopefully get them to buy it and um and and I'm just yeah I'm kind of obsessed with this idea that I have right now and and I hope that it gets to be my next book crossing my fingers Mm -hmm. and um yeah I mean since we're in the Hollywood realm um I always like to ask this of any novel we really love here in the ivory tower boiler room has it been optioned the family plot is there any kind of media you know bantering of tv film it has not yet so if anybody's listening in the tv film world and they would like to get on those rights, they can um, hit me up and I'll put you in touch with the right people. But there you go. Reese's <laughs> um, book club. Yeah. <laughs> Reese Withers. <laughs> I'll just call up Reese. <laughs> yeah. Well, because I think she's actually um, I think she optioned in a dark, dark wood, but I have I haven't heard mm. anything about that update. I thought yeah. it was supposed to be made into a movie. That's the thing, like these, like getting something optioned is basically like getting a lottery ticket. And so often it doesn't actually, nothing actually happens um, because I, I, apparently it's really hard to make a movie or a TV show, who knew? <laughs> but, but yeah, yeah, that would be a great one that I would love to see the as a movie. family plot play. Mm, yeah. That would be an interesting yeah. play. I've seen some like, you know, um, it was like when a stranger no, when a stranger causes that movie, <laughs> I think. But there was something about like a stranger cause. I think it's called a stranger cause, and it's a play, and it's you know very Agatha Christie. But I could, I could see this really play on stage because, well, let's get into the cover, right? Because I love you the have cover. Such a theatrical cover, yeah, of this little miniature house covered. Um, well, I'll ask you, Megan. What is a co- like? How did you get inspired? to yeah. cover the house. So um, I like that this concept for the cover wasn't um, even my idea. I had like 
when my editor says like, oh, what are you thinking you want for the cover? I was like, well, I want like a graveyard and, and soil and maybe <laughs> something's coming up through the soil. And she's like, okay, that reads as like a straight up horror novel. And that's not the vibe <laughs> we're going for. Um, but she's like, I have an idea of maybe playing with the diorama aspect. And I was like, yes, absolutely. You know, I love miniatures. Um, and then she came back to me with two drafts. Um, one was this and one was another it, it was just like a lot more simple and basic um, with like a small house still. But then, so this was basically the first thing I saw and I was just like, yep, that is it. Wrap it up, print it. There, there we go. Um, because I love that the cover speaks to um, so many elements of the book. Like um, we do have like the little, you can tell it's on like a table or something. Uh, so that's obviously like a diorama or a miniature or something um and then you have like this lit up window and someone's inside it and so much of the book is about how like people have looked in at this family and how they've interpreted their life um and you have that bell jar kind of on top of it which is to me really highlighting the the isolation that they're in in this house on this island in the way that they've been raised and their their very strange lifestyle um so it just it kind of like hit all those things for me and i had asked for a kind of ice blue tealish um color scheme and they delivered on that so then i immediately bought glasses that matched my book cover because i accidentally did that with, with my last book behind the red door i had red glasses and red cover so i was like this is gonna be my thing from now on so if if my next cover is like purple polka dots which i don't think it will be <laughs> i'm gonna Ooh, have to get some purple fun, polka dot glasses <laughs> yeah yeah or like a nice bright popping pink mm -hmm. but well i love that and you know to our listeners in a few minutes we're gonna have all of your spoilers answered but we're, we're easing we're easing our way into this you know but um kind of like dahlia's coffee shop that she lives above which seems very cozy. Um, or I was thinking, what a nice lifestyle, Dahlia. Um, without all the murder. <laughs> you know, I don't want without that. her obsessively searching for her brother that her she brother. doesn't know is dead. Yeah. yeah. Again, taking wholesome things and making them dark. <laughs> but like, is Behind the Red Door, I mean, I have to read it. Is it very similar in tone and theme? I mean, it's definitely, I'm always very interested in family dynamics and particularly dysfunctional family dynamics and all the different ways that parents can be not conventionally like good parents. And so there's like a, a father daughter relationship that's at the heart of that book that is like very unusual and strange. Um, but the, the central, the premise of that book is that um, this, the main character she sees this story on the news about this missing woman. Um, and it turns out that this woman was like famously, went famously missing as a child and then was equally famously sort of returned, um, but they never caught who did it. And so now 20 years later, she's gone missing again. Oh, no. And and, um, and the main character Fern sees this story about her on the news and she's like, I'm pretty sure I know that woman. And um, her husband's like, well, yeah, that's Astrid Sullivan. Like everybody knows who that is. And she's like, I've never heard that name. That means nothing to me. Like I didn't have TV growing up. Like I didn't see this. And, um, but she's like convinced that she has this connection to her and she's in the process of going back to her hometown to help her father who's about to move. So she's going to help him pack up. And that's kind of near where, um, like an hour away, at least of mm. where this abduction happened. So she takes that as an opportunity to see why she feels she has this connection and and there's also like a book within a book element Ooh. um because this missing woman has just written a memoir about her abduction and so she's so that's there's excerpts of that sorry i didn't mean to like suddenly no no this is wonderful because i'm like on the edge <laughs> yeah. of my seat i'm like okay mary and everyone out there, we need to read behind the door. <laughs> yeah. Like, okay. I am Googling. I am requesting. Okay. But um, the time has come to unveil all the secrets. So listeners out there, if you have not gotten to finish the family plot, 
You don't know who killed Andy. You don't know who the Blackburn killer is. Um, and you don't know how this family tears each other apart. Um, yeah, pause and listen to the audiobook, read, and then come back because we are about mm-hmm. to dig in, literally dig. Oh, that was that's a bad fun. But, you know, we're going to get into the plot. So, okay, Mary, the time has come for you to. Oh, man. Well, first off, we kind of touched on it already um, with the theme of like seclusion. Mm-hmm. There's so and not like a blanket like, oh, yeah, just they're stuck on this island type of a thing. There's also like these other types of like seclusion, because mm-hmm. then there's the fact that they are stuck in their house, essentially, because as the Blackburn murders are happening. Lorraine, the mother, is like reining them in more and more to keep them secluded into the house and things like that. So how did that, was that intentional to have those different types of, I call them types of seclusion, um, you know, versus just the, oh yeah, you know, they're stuck on an island. It's kind of a. Yeah. Um, I think because their isolation and the way that they grew up being kind of its own isolating factor too in that it's so different from anybody else and makes it hard to make connections with other people um I knew that I wanted to play with that uh, with images of isolation so it of course like you said it starts in the house and that that's basically the only place they really were and on their property but then their property is um kind of encircled by these woods that go on for a while and then you have the the kind of shore of the beach area which is mentioned many times it's not like a sandy bring your book and be there in the sun kind of shore it's very rocky and you wouldn't really hang out there um and so that's kind of like an isolating factor and then of course you have the ocean um so i wanted to have these sort of like rings of isolation that are just like tightening and tightening around them um to 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 reflect like I said kind of how their upbringing has made it so that you know it's that thing like you and your siblings are the only people who know what it was like to grow up in your house Um, like nobody else has that exact same experience but normally people have like relatively similar experiences but these kids and now adults um, had such a different way of growing up that it's really uh, affected how they've been able to move out into the world now that they're not in the house. Of mm. course, they come back into the house for the for the book and it takes place in there. Um, but you, we get a lot of how they either have or haven't been able to make connections in the world because of this strange way that they've lived. And speaking of their connections, it almost seems like, and I was saying this to Andrew and it felt really weird to like say it, but like each of the family members are essentially like, paired off Mm -hmm. so it's like you have mom and dad you have charlie and tate and then you have andy and dahlia Mm -hmm. what was did you have like a sibling like a close sibling experience to like inspire that or Um, how did my sister is three years older than me and like she hated me when I was a kid (laughs) so I mean we're fine now but it's just one of those like you're little and you hate each other um so I didn't have like a super someone I was super close with at the time when I was growing up in a sibling respect but I thought it was really interesting to have because this has kind of made it so that those kids now adults had different experiences even in their same like only we know what we've gone through kind of experience um that Charlie and Tate are like 10 years older than they them basically they're not twins but Tate is a year younger and then Dahlia and Andy are twins and I also knew that I wanted I knew from the start that Dahlia and Andy were going to be twins and so that in losing Andy she had sort of like lost everything um, because he was her only real link because the others were so much older that it wasn't like 
they weren't able to create the same kind of relationship. So then I wanted that now when she's back in her house with her family and they're all grown up, she kind of still feels on the outside because Tate and Charlie are so connected and she once had that with Andy and now she doesn't. So that that's kind of amplifying her grief. Um, so that, that was part of the decision-making for that. And you might, I'm trying to remember if this is answered in the novel, but because the author is here, this is the privilege we have asking the source is why are they so wealthy? Like, where does the trust money come from? So like, they the inheritance. the, their parents, Dal, not Dahlia, Lorraine's parents were these like gun manufacturers. And um, th that actually, the building where I taught um, mm. was the Colt factory in Hartford. So, which was really weird. We were like making art in this place that used to make guns. Um, <laughs> and it was all like renovated, but, but there was also like this creepy, not renovated part of it um, that was just all like bricks and like in ruins basically. And so it was a, it was a interesting place to work, but um, I think that was kind of in my, in my head of inspiring that like, I was like, okay, I need something that like, what, what could make them rich? Well, they're gun manufacturers. And then that comes into play um, mm -hmm. in the book with, since this is a spoiler, um, yep. Lorraine's been telling everyone her whole life or not her whole life, her like adult life on this island and her kids that her parents were murdered. And then that's why, um, and that that's why she has this fascination with murder because um, she kind of finds comfort in these stories that are like hers, but, um, and she, and this like detail was that, oh, they were killed by the own, the gun of the type that they actually manufactured. And like, that was super eerie, but um, what it is revealed is that um, her parents were not killed in this home invasion. They had lung cancer and they died because they had both smoked cigarettes. So she kind of, so people were like saying at the funeral, like, oh, well, you know, like, what did they expect kind of thing is going to happen, which was really hard for her to take because she's like, well, okay, but they're still dead and I'm, I've lost my parents. So she kind of reinterpreted that as a story of they were killed by something that they had created. Um, and, and of course, that's, that's a big shocking reveal to the kids who had been told their whole life that, um, that this was this way and now it's not but I actually did that that was a really important um, element to the story for me because one thing I want to talk about about true crime obsessions is that I think a lot of times true crime can be like this weird comfort for people who have gone through a lot of stuff um, because you're it's not necessarily reflecting your specific trauma but it is reflecting grief and trauma and fear and all of that um and so Lorraine in the story she becomes obsessed with these murder stories because um she's kind of seeing validation for her grief that her parents were taken from her she feels and whereas she was not getting that validation otherwise because people were saying well they were smokers what did they think was going to happen and she's like that's that's not like that's not that's not what I'm feeling <laughs> so um I feel like I strayed so far from the original question. But. No, no, but I think it's, yeah. Like, I just think this whole family, I mean, we'll get to the father, but that they all really need deep counseling and therapy yeah. because oh, yes. like, there's a lot of times though I questioned, oh, that makes sense why Lorraine would make up that lie. But like, mm -hmm. you have us really believing and sympathizing, even though, you think about it, wow, what an awful thing to lie about, about your yeah. parents to then justify why you're doing this homeschool true crime curriculum. Right. It's like, wait, mm -hmm. this is not adding up here. But yeah. it's, and Lorraine is actually a very, um, or she came off to me, very unsure of who she is mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and not feeling capable of her own knowledge mm -hmm. and like going out there to fulfill her passions like she's stuck she seems very mm -hmm. stuck and yeah. I'm assuming like that was intentional with what happens with her husband 
yeah um but also like even before that it's like um you know she finds out that her son was murdered was literally in their own backyard um under the ground and no one knew and so she is kind of questioning everything that she's ever done like okay i've been telling these murder stories did i kind of call this into existence and so that's why in the book like she does a complete 180 and her reaction to this to this insane thing that happened is to start trying to kind of be like miss susie homemaker which the way she chooses to do that is to obsessively bake cookies and she's like no no no! like i never baked you guys cookies like i have to make you cookies and they're like we don't want cookies right now but she's just like cookies 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 (laughs) which that was that was a thing like when I was just putting the pitch together for this I was like okay well this character does this this character does this and the mother is manically baking cookies and like I didn't really know why or (laughs) what that was but then when I started exploring the character and what she would uh think when she discovers this thing about her son I was like okay that actually makes sense as a you know every reaction to grief is very specific and um can be very strange and on a expected so that made sense to me that she would she would overcorrect for the way she did mother them in the past yeah i also found the pie joke to be quite hilarious obviously the mom (laughs) does not find it so funny but i was just like (laughs) that made me chuckle good yeah and um like with dahlia because that's the only access of someone's inner thoughts were given, mm-hmm. right? Because of the first person element. Did you ever get annoyed by Dahlia? Or <laughs> I even kept questioning. I always question. I'm like, mm-hmm. maybe it's because I'm such a Poe lover and I always think of an unreliable narrator. So I'm like, Dahlia's the killer. What are you thinking? <laughs> she's she's convincing herself. But, yeah. you know, I always think there's going to be some element where the narrator just falls apart. But um like, you know, are there elements where Dahlia, you um, you feel like she handled every moment with grace? Or did you even question what she was doing? No, I mean, she's definitely spinning and spiraling. And um, because she spent her last 10 years of her life devoting her life to searching in these very repetitive routine-like ways, the internet and social media for her brother. She's not going out into the world to do it. She's just doing it from her computer. So now that she's finding out like all of that was for nothing, he was never there. And the fact that she was so sure that she would know like if something had happened to him and she had no idea, um, it's, it's really hard for her. So she, and that's part of her journey is like, how much did you not know about your brother? And obviously it's a lot. <laughs> um, and and so like, I know that a lot of thrillers have either dual or multi point of views, um, but I really wanted to keep this inside of Dahlia because um, she was the only one who didn't have like a big secret that um, was related to all this. And so, it, it kind of didn't make sense to go into the other people's heads. Um, and I wanted the reader to be feeling like those suspicions towards the family members in the same way that she kind of starts to, or is like, no, I'm not even going to go there. Um, and so, yeah, I wanted to keep it definitely confi- confined to her experience. Also the fact that she was the closest one to Andy. And so therefore has been kind of the most impacted by this revelation yeah yeah and I really liked having access to the characters from her frame of mind Mm -hmm. like I Mm -hmm. it made a lot of sense yeah I really because she's the only one who's like what are you people doing like you're all doing ridiculous things and I think we should be focusing on who killed Andy but you're making a murder museum you're making a doll out of his death scene you're making cookies that are burning up the place <laughs> yeah. so mm-hmm. she's kind of the only like weird voice of reason in that respect yeah mm-hmm. yeah and thank goodness i'm glad that we didn't have access to charlie oh yeah <laughs> like i don't really there's a lot going on in his yeah. head and i think we can now open up the can and of he, worms he, 
he hides it very well though Mm -hmm. to be honest he was the last person i suspected oh wow good Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and maybe it was just me because i was just like i really don't want it to be anyone in this family because yeah yeah, they know about murder and like i don't know i was just like i just don't want it to be any one of them like Mm -hmm. (laughs) just did it yeah in fact i told andrew i was like my first thought was what if it's ruby what if she did it and Lyle helped? Yeah. <laughs> like that's the ending I was hoping for. Yeah. yeah I mean, suspicious. I'm glad that you went there because um, I think when you're, when you're a thriller writer creating like the clues and the, and the, whatever the suspects, you want to have red herrings who are red herrings mm-hmm. on the page that the, that the um, character themselves is suspecting. And then you want to kind of leave, at least one character that the character never suspects so that the reader is like, well, she hasn't talked about that person. Mm -hmm. So that must be who it is. So it's like an invisible red herring. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm glad you went there. Yeah. Or like I even thought that <laughs> the cops were in cahoots. Like I thought Elijah. Mm-hmm. Wait, it's Elijah, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Elijah and his father. Mm-hmm. And but then I was a little saddened. I will admit that Elijah and um, Dahlia didn't get together. I thought there was going to be some romance. I was like, Oh, are they going to start dating? I know when I. T- Turned in the first draft and then I had a conversation for like edits and stuff with my editor and agent. They were both talking about how they're like, Dahlia and Elijah have so much chemistry. And they're like, I mean, we're not saying that anything should happen because it would kind of be strange in this book, but we might write some fan fiction about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, I do. I could see it like going into the romance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Novel realm. But um, okay, so the father. Mm-hmm. right you've heard it dun, dun, here dun. he is the blackburn killer mm-hmm. ladies and gentlemen that is the big spoiler well i don't know if that's the largest spoiler no i'm just say. say charlie and andy to me were the yeah yeah like where i literally dropped my jaw yeah and messaged mary and said no what is happening <laughs> here but it's and like, i had I hadn't yeah. gotten there yet. So I literally glanced and saw you mention their names and I turned my phone right over <laughs> and I said, I will look at this as soon as I am done. <laughs> yeah. And the grooming, right? Like that they're mm-hmm. accomplishing their father as um, helping him with his serial killer yeah. spree, but that like they're innocent youth and they're going to entrap the women because yeah. they're young. It's just... So it's so twisted. I don't know mm-hmm. how that even like came from me. I get a lot of questions actually um, when I do events, like people will be like, you seem like a very like cheerful, like happy person. Like what happened? Like why are these stories what the happened? they are? <laughs> Who hurt you? Yeah. I, think most, <laughs> you I feel like most thriller and horror novelists, um, psychological thriller, Everyone we've interviewed, they are very cheerful. Like I think it's because we get it all out in the on the the page. Yeah, yeah, in your creativity, and I think it's the ones who write humor you have to be aware of. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) watch out. Okay, but um, (laughs) no. So, I mean, I understood that kind of entrapment because, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, it's something that happens a lot in like sexual abuse. Mm -hmm of grooming so like my yeah. mind went there yeah like and I was definitely thinking of that parallel mm-hmm. when I was thinking about how how this was a form of abuse yeah to these kids even though like there's no name for what like like serial killer induction abuse like there's no easy name for that but it is clearly abuse yeah and they're having a type of like Charlie you can tell it's a type of Stockholm syndrome in a way of, yeah like is was this right or like what happened and but again right morality sets in mm-hmm. and like i'm still questioning because i don't have an answer and i don't know if in society we do like if you are part eventually at an age where you are harming someone and then it leads to their murder but you're not the one perpetrate, uh, perpetrate. Ah, yeah. You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. Perpetrating, <laughs> perpetrating. There you go. Perpetrating it. That um, are you actually guilty? Right. And I'm not mm-hmm. sure. I'm not well, sure I mean, if they're guilty. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that they are personally. 
um, because this was something that happened to them and that they, the deeper they got into it and the older they were, the more they were pressured, like, well, if you tell, like, you're going to go to prison. Um, and, and it just became something like they couldn't escape. But um, I mean, such a big part of the book is that they do feel that they're guilty, like, and that leads to Andy wanting to die and wanting um, Charlie to just kill him. And because he can't imagine like living with this for the rest of his life. And we see how Charlie, who didn't die at the age that Andy did, how that has manifested in his life, that he is obviously not in a good place. And Charlie was my favorite character to write in the book because he's so, I find him so funny that he, he like everything he says is so inappropriate mm -hmm. and like, it's not the time. And um, he's always like saying these like darkly funny things. And so I had so much fun writing him, um, but also like knowing like why that's all there and why that's the way that he is and, and what that is trying to suppress um, made it, made him a really like, again, fun doesn't seem like the right word, but a fun character to write in that there was a lot going on there. Um, but I like, I always get the like, oh, the characters are so, so unlikable thing. And it's like, well, these people are really weird. Like they're not, like, I hope you can't relate to them that much. I mean, there's definitely emotions there that you should be able to relate to because the emotions themselves are kind of universal. Yeah. But, um, and when I hear that about Charlie though, that he's unlikable, I'm always like, no, I love him and I want him to just be okay. And yeah, but I also and we feel were like actually, oh, sorry, Megan. No, I was just going to say like those questions about likability to me, that just, well, maybe again, it's because I teach literature, mm -hmm. um, but I'm just thinking there's something about suspending disbelief and mm -hmm. these aren't people that you have to have brunch with. Right, exactly. You know, like this isn't you your You just have to be invested in group. their story. And, um, and of course, like it comes up a lot more with female characters mm -hmm. of whether they're likable or not. And that, and that um, being what brings value to the book. And if they're unlikable, then no, like who cares about that book? Um, I don't know if you know the podcast, Unlikable Female Characters. Yeah. Um, mm -mm. That... Um, a couple of authors do thriller authors do and they just go into these like these unlikable female characters and they talk about why it's all bullshit basically and mm -hmm. um it's a great podcast so i definitely recommend okay that. good unlikable female characters i like that yeah well i mean charlie does kill andy yeah <laughs> so i'm like wait there is guilt there's yeah. definitely guilt there um yeah well when we were when i was discussing with uh, my agent editor about the ending to the book, um, like we were kind of toying with, okay, do we want to see him like sent to prison in the end? Do we mm. want, want to see like, how is this going to resolve? And we ultimately came to the conclusion. I think my editor said like, I don't want to see Charlie suffer anymore than he already has. Like, like his suffering that he's done throughout his life, both from what his dad did to him and what he did to Andy, like, that's kind of enough. Like he, he has been his own punishment. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, like he's not this innocent character um, by any means, but it's also a product of his trauma and, um, and, and the way that he was brought up in the larger sense too. So um, that's why like, I get a little, yeah, and I don't usually protective. get this way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't usually, I'm usually like, eh, whatever, but mm -hmm. um I always get the thing people say like my main characters I get the that they can be annoying and I was like that's because they're just all so like neurotic and they're yeah. also <laughs> which I am such an anxious person and so that filters into a lot of their because they're like solving murders or missing people things and so like I'm like yeah well my brain is pretty annoying too so <laughs> I have to say though I do like that we get that backstory of Charlie because we don't get it really with the dad we don't know why yeah. he set out to kill women and dress them in blue dresses and things like that but with Charlie we understand why he kills Andy mm -hmm. and I think for me as someone who's interested in true crime my thing is especially when there's a serial killer who's had a very traumatic upbringing mm -hmm. what I like to say is it's not an excuse 
but here's the explanation of why that happened. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And, and I didn't want to get into why Daniel is the way that he is and why, I mean, there's mm-hmm. like information that he was bounced around kind of in the foster system and um, he was left as a baby or whatever. So, so you get these little inklings of his background, but um, I didn't want it to be about finding out why he did all this. Cause it, in the end, it doesn't matter. Like yeah. you did what you did and this is what happened as a result. These are the lives that were lost. These are the families that were ruined and all that. And um, so that was definitely a deliberate choice to not go into that, but instead to focus on the damage that had been done to the these characters that we do get to know. Mm, that makes sense. Well, and I think like as we near our end with you, which went by so quickly, Megan, um, <laughs> like at least there's the, like Dolly, I sympathized a lot with her about breaking the traumatic hold over Charlie. Like you need to go to therapy. And yeah. I think like, that's just some lesson to take away from all of us, for all of us is, mm-hmm why you need to have professional help to really work through past trauma. So like yeah. that to me was, okay, I'm taking that out. I'm taking that away, <laughs> even though I'm, I don't agree at all with what Charlie did. Right. But at least there will be healing and hopefully mm-hmm. Charlie will find healing and the cycle won't repeat, but right. right? It's right. That lingers mm-hmm. in Dahlia's mind. What happens if yeah. this happens again? And, and it's I kind think of maybe- like Dracula. <laughs> Like what happens if the vampire comes back? Yeah. Yeah. And I was just thinking that might also be, I have to do, or at least this is me diving into Dahlia's psyche. The fact that Andy felt like he couldn't, that, you know, there's something in his blood, you know, that they're so unnatural that they couldn't live any other way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And, and so we've seen kind of the possibilities of choices for these kids like you either end your life or you're kind of walking through your life as sort of a ghost and not making connections or you're covering it with something. And so, yeah, I really wanted to push that. I was really clear, like, I'm not changing that aspect of they're going to go to therapy um, because they so desperately need it. And I also mm-hmm. want to like do whatever I can to normalize like mental health issues and going to therapy and then like we all even if our dad wasn't a serial killer which hopefully most of our dads are not um we still need that ourselves so yeah exactly well that's a good place to end is on therapy yeah um so thank you so much megan this was an amazing conversation um everyone please get your hands or your earbuds on the family <laughs> plot. It is such a great novel. Um, yeah, and we can't wait for mm-hmm. you to join us again, Megan, when yeah. your next book comes out. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. And you guys asked such great questions. So thank you for oh. your thoughtfulness in reading the book. Okay, well, thank you, Megan. Yeah. And yeah, you know, bye to all of you listening out there. And thank you, Mary, too, for always being oh, my trusty book club co-host. Oh, it's a pleasure. <laughs> We hope you all enjoyed our deep dive of Megan Collins's The Family Plot. Thank you so much to Megan for being with us at the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I know Mary's true crime heart was ablaze. So if you haven't, listen to Mary's True Crime in Academia podcast. It comes out on Tuesdays. And on Mondays, you will always have a new interview that I will be sitting down with either a creative writer, an artist, a performer, an academic, someone who speaks to the humanities. Follow us on social media. We have a Instagram, a TikTok, a Facebook, a Twitter. Um, Search at Ivory Tower Boiler Room, especially for um, Twitter. Just make sure you put at Ivory Boiler Room. And then We have an upcoming Instagram Live book club. Um, We are discussing Mona Awad's All's Well. So look for that on our Instagram. Um, That will be our April book club. And I want to thank the Ivory Tower Boiler Room team. They include Mary DePippi, our chief contributor, 
Jaren Usta, our marketing director, our two interns, Kimberly Dallas and Nicole Arguello, and I'm Andrew Rimby, the executive director. We thank you so much for joining us. Make sure you head on over also to our Patreon. We have merchandise on there. Become a subscriber. You get exclusive access to our video interviews. It's really exciting. You see our faces. You see the gestures. It means a lot. Um, especially, you'll see, I'm very animated with my hands. <laughs> okay, we hope you all are well and are staying healthy. See you next time.